from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. Today is the 20th Wednesday. I hope you're having a great day, working hard, getting over hump day, and just looking forward to Friday. Even us entrepreneurs who love what we do, passionate about it, still look forward to Friday, right? I do. Anyway, today's great show. First up, Bedad Jamshidi has built something that we've all needed so many times. I've thought of this idea a hundred times and wished this resource was available. What if there was a way of knowing if the marketing agency was any good? If some outside process vetted them and had a stamp of approval? Bedad has built just that. It's an amazing story of giving back to the community, and I'm very excited for you to meet him and hear the story. After that, we're going to speak with Jacqueline Shamira. Samira. Samira, I'm sorry. She is the founder of a company called Howdy. It is an HR placement team for programmers from Latin America is my understanding. And boy, is this a cool success story. And she did it right. And so very excited to have someone, especially a woman in tech internationally. And boy, I'm excited to have you learn from her. So Great thing there. And then we're going to wrap it up today with a little bit of levity, which we're going to need after my rant. I'm about to go on a rant. One of my famous, or is it infamous, rants. We're going to play a game of the Quick 10. It is, see, you don't play the Quick 10 as much as I do. Over the last four or five years, we have collected four or 500 entrepreneurs answering the same 10 questions. We have aired so far about 5% of them. I am backlogging them because we're going to produce a book, a product for charity, for uh, entrepreneurs. It's like a coffee table book on entrepreneurship. 10 questions, all great questions about entrepreneurship and hundreds of entrepreneurs answering those same questions. So we're going to play that with Robert Cote. He is an intellectual property attorney. That was on the show, oh, about a month ago. And so we are going to share his quick 10 answers because I liked them and thought you needed to hear it. And that book will be coming out, so I don't know when. If anyone wants the job of putting it together, send me an email and you can be my co-author because I need help getting it done. I have too many projects and it's a good one sitting on the shelf. So rant time. Last week, I went on a rant about a continuing rant about how the United States government in many capacities, local, state, and federal, is fighting entrepreneurship and small business. And there are so many examples. My favorite example is just here in Georgia. 
if you want to sell ice cream in a retail environment, it has to be packed by machine. That machine costs a million dollars, making it impossible for a small dairy to pack ice cream. But why is that law in existence? Probably because a dairy paid somebody to get it into existence, right? There are just thousands of examples. And the latest one I was talking about is New York City has dramatically made it much more difficult to have an Airbnb. That affects so many elderly families who that Airbnb extra income is what kept them afloat. And now there's a new process, but the rules are incredibly onerous. They are basically designed to run the Airbnb out of the five bureau boroughs. And there is a process to apply to get a license, but the acceptance approval rate so far is something less than 10%. So you go through all this onerous process and then you still don't get approved and you've lost two, $3,000 of income that was keeping you afloat. And all you have left is social security. It's a war on small business. Of course, I do believe, and I want to stress this, that small businesses and these Airbnb should be complying with the same basic rules that the hotels have to and should be paying tax. That's only fair to have a level playing field, but it is definitely a war on small business. Today's rant is I'm unfortunately going to rant on a couple of small businesses. So there are industries that I have for a long time had a bias against. And well, before I go into that, have you been on the website Reddit? It has a really cool, it's a forum thing. You post forums and, or you post questions and people come on and answer, or there's topics with ongoing conversations. One of them is, am I the a-hole where you describe a situation and then ask the community to give their input as to who was the jerk in this situation. And they have some really funny ones. They're all about family situations and life and culture and stuff like that. And so I wanted to do one of those, but I want it to be business. So I didn't, I decided not to post it on Reddit. I'm going to post this on LinkedIn where us business people like to talk and ask the community of my friends and associates if I was the a-hole or not. And I want you to hear it first. So there are a couple of industries that I'm not very impressed with. One is travel agents. I'm sorry. I can give example after example of how they are, are just not the brightest bulbs, the people in that industry. And if you want to play that game, I'll go through it. There are actually even some posts on School for Startups Radio, this site, about that. If you go through some of the older posts, there's one from earlier this year, travel agent that I dealt with from the inside seeing all of the warts and all of the goodness and wrote it up because I was so disgusted with it. Another industry that I'm really love to bash is the swag people. You know what I mean by swag, the t-shirts, the pens with your logo, all of that. So I first started swagging when I was in the camp business, we had to give each kid a shirt, right? You know that. And they added up. I was buying tens of of thousands of shirts a month and giving them away and a whole bunch of other stuff too the the hoodies and the frisbees and all of that the hacky sacks we sold all of it it was a great source of income for us 
And so I've been dealing with swag for 30 years and I've met many, many swag companies and some of them are great, but very professional. And some are obviously not the smartest bulbs. When I was working with the Atlanta Metro Chamber, one of their biggest problems was interacting big business with small business. So they would bring in a famous CEO, say the CEO of Home Depot or Delta or something like that, and let them interact with the small business members of the chamber. They would all talk. The pen salesman would bother them so much the CEO of Delta, that they stopped doing those. So anyway, I interacted with a pen salesman this week. I said, dude, when you're going to send me stuff, don't send me stuff with your logo on it. Send me stuff with my logo. He got so mad that he hung up. What are your thoughts? Bye, bye, bye. I was just trying to help his business, trying to give him an idea for improvement. I don't want your logo. If you're trying to impress me and make me buy, send me my logo. That would impress well, that's me. A, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually. Oh my gosh, I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's awesome. That's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question, and that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us today. You know. There are just so many marketing agencies, especially search engine optimization, SEO agencies out there, and they all say the same thing, and you never know if the results are going to be what you paid for. Wouldn't it be nice if there was some way to vet the marketing agencies and to find out if they were any good? Well, there is such a resource, and I'm excited to introduce you to a guest who has built it and can help us find out all about it. Please welcome Baydad Shamshidi to the show. Jam Shidi, I'm sorry, to the show. He has a company called CJAM Marketing, and they have assessed over 700 marketing agencies and vetted them down to about 80 or 90 that they will actually vouch for. This has been featured in Bloomberg, National Post, and the Financial Post. Amazing story. Bedad, welcome to the, uh, the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. All right. So did I explain it well? Did I get the numbers right? You interviewed 700 and have filtered it down to about 90? Yes. I mean, the exact number, we rounded up a bit, but it's 682 exactly. Um, and yeah, we vetted them down to about 90 partners that we work with today. Okay. In what categories, what, what groups, what buckets? It, it goes across all aspects of marketing. Um, originally we just started with websites, you know, four and a half years ago, but as customers needed more and more things, we had to keep adding. So it goes anything from branding to websites to ad placements, uh, digital ads, SEO, copywriting, influencer marketing, you kind of name it in marketing. We cover it. The only one part that I haven't been able to fill yet is affiliate marketing because um, those are a little bit harder to find on the agency world. Interesting. Yes, I would agree with that. I don't know the uh, one off the top of my head either. And is the resource available at the CGM website or is it someplace else? Um, the resource, you mean in terms of how people can get in contact with them? 
Well, the the list. Say if we want to, how do we interact with the list? So if I want to come to you, yeah. uh, do I have to buy access? How does it work? Yeah, so typically what the process looks like is uh, I have customers that reach out to me. We set up a call. Um, my background, I used to be a business consultant. I'm an engineer by trade. Um, and I used to work with businesses anywhere from about 50 to 1,000 type employee range. So I'll have a conversation with businesses anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours just to make sure that I understand the business, what they're trying to do. Because at the end of the day, most businesses think they need one thing, but they really might need something else. And so once I kind of do my assessment, I go, okay, well, based on what you told me, here's how I would approach this on the marketing side. Um, and then from there, I charge a small fee as a, a marketing broker engagement fee. I go chat with partners, give them the background, make sure they're a proper fit for the company. And then I send them an email that says, here's the five things that you needed in marketing. And here are the partners that I would recommend you have a discussion with. And then companies would literally go have discussions with those companies and agencies. And when they feel comfortable, they sign someone that they want to sign with. Um, and that's basically how the service works. Well, simple. How'd you get the idea for this? How did you get started? Tell us the little, the entrepreneurial story behind it. Yeah, of course. Um, so I started out, as I mentioned, as an engineer, I used to work for a large telecom called TELUS up in Canada. Um, so I was basically working with businesses of all sorts, anywhere from 50 to a thousand type employee range, talking to C-level executives, IT, understanding kind of what's going on in the business. And then based on that, I'd be building out like a technology roadmap. Um, and then that would touch up a whole bunch of other aspects of the business. So that's where a lot of my like business consulting, sales, leadership, and um, technology experience came from. But on the marketing side, I started a business. Um, and as I was doing that, I started noticing that, um, you know, I used to build websites and do Google ads and SEO, but uh, I didn't have enough time in the day given I was working two jobs at the time. So I started looking for partners to work with. And I started noticing that when agencies or marketing partners would get into conversations, they'd really only be good at like one to three things. Um, but there was always this gap where marketing agencies didn't understand business and business people didn't understand marketing. And ultimately, I just saw these agencies picking up work where I'm like, oh, you're really good at websites, but you don't actually do SEO well. So why are you taking that on as work? And so this gap really made me start thinking. I'm like, oh, this is really hard for businesses to navigate. And I literally just, you know, putting my head down, started basically meeting people one-on-one -on -one for the last four and a half years to that crazy number that we kind of mentioned before at 682. And um, now I'm at the point where, you know, I see the value in the gap. And so I can talk to businesses and go, look, you need these three things in marketing. There's no one agency that can do all these three things well, but here's the two agencies that plug in the gap. Um, and I notice it worked quite well. How does an agency respond when you initiate the conversation and say, I want to come in and vet you and see if you're any good at this? I could see a lot of them saying, who the hell are you? You know, why do you get to do that? You know, challenging you on this. Have you encountered that? Not, not really, because a lot of agencies get, so once you kind of build the network out, like other agencies are referring other agencies to you. Like once you find good people, those good people will refer you to other good people. So one, you're getting kind of warm into those environments. Um, and then the other part is uh, like, I'm part of a ton of different groups and things like that. So you, once you build a brand, people actually start reaching out to you to get vetted, uh, which is the uh -huh. fun part. Um, right. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to kind of vet people that way. Um, and then when you're reaching out and like when I'm reaching out, I just want to tell people, I'm like, Hey, this is kind of who I am. This is what I do. And at the end of the day, like agencies are businesses and they're always looking for leads. Right. So why would they not want to talk to someone who's talked to so many different agencies um, and, and bring them like a proper customer? Cause for them, it's like, Oh, if I can tell someone what I really want, 
in a business or the type of people that I want to work with or like what revenue range and that kind of thing that they're really good at, they're happy to get a lead that actually fits them really, really well. I, it makes a lot of sense. Yes. And then how do you actually vet them? How do you know if the SEO agency is actually any good or not? How can you look at results and see that they actually did that or made that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So typically like what my vetting process looks like because I've done so many of them, like I'll usually have uh, the initial meeting, which is a 30 minute meeting. I'll meet and greet with any agency just because I always want to be meeting and seeing who's out there. In that first meeting, I can tell a lot of red flags just by the way that people talk and what they say. Um, but if everything checks out, you know, their values align to my values, which are like always trying to make sure that customers are taken care of, people are being authentic and they're doing good by their customers. Like that's typically what I'm looking for. I'm trying to find people that are like passionate about their agency. If they pass that part, then I basically ask them for videos, um, documents, things that like show me, Hey, tell me what you've been able to do and at what price range and what results you've had. After I look over that, um, which is totally separate, like typically through like an email transaction, I'm going through stuff. And then we do a follow-up call where I say, look, I've seen the initial stuff that you sent over to me. Um, I'm prepared to do like a one hour deep dive with you guys to go even deeper into the stuff that I'm not sure about. So I have a set of about 30 plus questions that I ask agencies when I'm vetting them for that extra hour on top. Um, and if everything looks good there and there's not a lot of red flags, um, then I can add them to my partner network. So I have like two lists on the back end. And on the back end, also to join the partner network, there's a cost. Um, that's another one of my filtering areas. It's like, can an agency pay to be in the network, which kind of tells me a little bit about like what kind of agency they are as well. So I have multiple levels of filtering. Um, and then from there, I mean, at the end of the day, I can't tell if an agency is going to be great with a customer because now you're involving personalities. It's kind of like a relationship matching, um, you know, right. where you yeah, have two people, they look great on paper. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I do my absolute best. I'm, I'm right now I'm hitting about 80% of the time. Um, I have built successful connections that have lasted longer than six months. Um, which I think is way better than what businesses are doing currently themselves, where they go through three or four before they realize they just can't find the right agencies. Right. So I can hit that pretty much on the first time about 80% of the time. And when you think about, you know, a, a business needing three or four different marketing things, they need three, two to three different partners. And so, it's hard enough finding one, but getting two to three is like pretty much impossible if you don't have the network. Yes. Yep. Oh, I love it. Makes a ton of sense. I I'm sitting here reminiscing about all of the times that I wish I had had this service and had known about it. Cause I would have used it many times and I can't imagine that I wouldn't have gotten better results. So how long do you follow along in the project? So typically it depends on what kind of project. So if it's like a website project, I'm checking in kind of like in the middle and at the end, um, just to make sure everything's going smoothly. Um, and then if it's an ongoing project, every two or three months, I'll reach out to my customers and say, Hey, how's the project going? Um, how's the agency doing? Cause they'd be doing something better. And, uh, usually like I get very honest answers from there. And then I kind of relate to my customers like, well, if you want me to share that information with them or are you already sharing it with them? And a lot of the times, like when agency relationships don't work with businesses, one, it's either like a communication issue where people just aren't communicating or two, it's just people are not understanding what's being done and why it's important. So I always want to make sure that I'm kind of like bridging that gap if things are missing um, to make sure that the relationship continues to be strong. Yeah. Excellent. And what are the 
like the largest uh i don't know how you measure it deals or uh that kind of thing uh you know i'm thinking about my wife and the business that she works for they build websites that are a million dollar budget are some of the projects that big yeah. included yeah so it really depends on the type of like projects right so i have like um, businesses that are spending, you know, two, $300,000 on just like ads, right. And running it with an agency. Um, you have, I have agencies that like personally work on websites that are, like you said, maybe not the million dollar range, but they're in like the 200 to $500,000 range. Or you have like dev or app companies that are, you know, building applications that start out at the 200, $300,000 level. But as it evolves, you know, you get into the millions, um, right. what, spend, uh, what they spend on the apps. Right. So this really depends on, you know, the business that you get, I don't work with a ton of enterprise customers just because I've only been around for four and a half years and enterprise move is pretty slowly. Um, but in that mid market range, yeah, those, those projects can get up to those, those numbers. Well, it's fantastic. Brilliant idea. And I appreciate you being with us today to share it. How do we find out more follow online and most importantly, sign up for a call to have our initial meeting. Yeah, I mean, um, the two best ways to reach out to me, one is I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you just look at uh, Jamshidi, I'm sure it'll be in the, the show notes. You can find me there. Um, or if you go to my website at www.ejammarketing.com and reach out there, you can book a, whether you want to book a meeting right away or just reach out to me via email. Um, that's the best way there. But dad, a great idea. I am uh, blown away by how obvious this is, how useful it is, how much work you've had to put in to get it all done. Uh, the hundreds of hours, thousands of hours you've devoted to the research. You've built an amazing asset and I'm going to be hiring you soon. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. And we'll be right back. Bye, bye, bye. Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back, and again, thank you so very much for being with us today. I am very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur. Please welcome Jacqueline Samira to the show. She is the CEO and founder of a company called Howdy. They have over 200 employees. They are, well, she was doing about 3 million and joined Y Combinator's W21 batch. They've grown the company since then to about 105 million in projections to hit or valuation of 105 and uh, revenue of about 30 million. The company is an onshoring product development company, I think. So if you want to come up with a new product, you hire them, they put all of their brains together and you end up with a great product. Jacqueline, welcome to the company. How are you doing? Oh, thank you. I am doing great. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am well. Well, you tell me, how did I do an onshore product development shop? 
Uh, very close. Very close. We're a near shore. Near shore. Okay. Near shore. So, but actually we don't do product development. We will help companies build their team of technical developers. So a lot of times people are building their own product. They just need to staff up and they don't have the, the quality or caliber of talent nearby. So we help them by sourcing awesome people near shore. Okay. So, but they are very particular people, right? I mean, we get back to the product through the HR people that we bring in. Is that correct? Yes, that is okay. correct. That is correct. So interesting. So your job is to help me build out my product team. Yes, All right, exactly. Give me an example. Well, let's work through one of your clients. We don't need a name or anything, but what did oh, they yeah. say when they came to you and what did you do for them? So an example would be, we would get a YC company and they're like, Hey, look, we're a founder team and we're looking to build out our dev team. We need a technical architect uh, that is a full stack developer that can help us build this product that works independently. Boom. We go out and get them. Or we'll have a bigger company that let's just say has a technical team already in place, but they're looking for four other folks and a various requirements. So usually people will come to us with, different goals of the person or persons or teams that they're trying to build. The unique thing too, is we have offices. We have seven different offices throughout South America. So if people want to keep their team together or create what we like to call the center of excellences, we can source in market local so that they can build a team together. So it's not all remote. So we're flexible, but um, that's, that's an example of what people do. But, with developers in the same time zone. Yes, exactly. Okay. Explain the Latin America connection again. So that was, I mean, it's, it's really the time zone. When I was leading growth at a lot of various startups here in Austin, Texas, we would get huge fundraising rounds. And then the next thing we'd have to do is say, okay, let's go hire all these people that can go and build the product that we promised we're going to go and build. And we couldn't hire fast enough or we couldn't hire, uh, people with enough experience that wasn't going to go and get, let's just say, um, taken away to like one of those bang companies. And so it was really, really hard for smaller size companies that I was a part of that I was leading to build developer talent. And so we were looking for solutions that could help us and all of the solutions were overseas. And so they were in India or Asia or Eastern Europe. And while those people are excellent and they're very technically sound, when you are a smaller company, communication is everything. And having the same core working hours for communication was make it or break it in these early stage type companies. And so for us, I was like, man, we got to find someone that overlaps on time zones. And I was looking up and I was looking down and I realized at the time that there was no good viable solutions that was uh, resourcing talent in Latin America for U.S. companies. And that's where I came up with the idea of Howdy. Interesting. When we talk about Latin America, do we think of good tech development skills? Are the universities there producing the same quality, say, as India and some of the other places that we think of when we think of developers? You know, it's funny that you mentioned this. It, in our experience, we have seen incredible, incredible talent because we went to markets. I mean, a lot of these markets, education has been huge. There's been fantastic universities that are hundreds of years old. There have been people in Brazil, for example, if you look at like 
the economy of Brazil. There's close to over 200 million people. There's over 500,000 developers. This isn't something that's new or trendy for them. Brazil is a country, as an example, that has been there since the dawn of software programming, of the internet, of everything. And so a lot of times when you look at talent, you look for talent, it's not just are there smart people there right now doing it, it's have there been smart people there doing it for decades that are now the teachers of the new students that give their wisdom. Um, and we see this in Buenos Aires, we see this in Brazil, we see this in Montevideo, Uruguay, which has the strongest middle class of all of South America. And so there's just so many universities and talent that have this long tenured of education for computer programming. And so to me, it's always been really funny. Like, why did we go to India first? Because there was a whole continent below us of people doing it at the same time that us in the United States were doing it. Montevideo, it's a long time since I've heard that place. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite stories of all time, Jacqueline, happened in Montevideo. What happened? Uh, Uruguay, right? Just yes, a yes. quick ferry ride from Buenos Aires. Yes, and that is right. I was, I think, maybe on the ferry back and got a, a call from my credit card company, uh, emergency, saying that there's been fraud on my credit card. And I say, well, tell me about it. And the, you know, someone was buying stuff in Montevideo and you were buying, they were buying, uh, Yves Saint Laurent clothing and, okay. and, and at the one store in Montevideo. And I was like, well, actually that was me. And I was curious. I said, well, what set off the alert? The fact that it was Montevideo, Uruguay, or the fact that I was buying clothes. And the funny thing about the story was. The fact that I was in Montevideo was, was the alert was the fact that I spent money on clothes and that I hadn't <laughs> bought clothes in so long that they thought that that was a sign of fraud. Oh. Uh, I, I just had a different girlfriend, you know, so she was making you yeah. know, girlfriends make you buy new clothes. Yep. So anyway, I was doing that and, uh, I got anyway, that's an awesome place. I mean, if I could live in Montevideo. That's one of the most beautiful places on earth. Isn't uh, it gorgeous? I tell people, I'm like, it's like Orange County, but it's not overpopulated and it's like affordable still. <laughs> with good beef. Yes, with great beef. Yes. Okay, so interesting. I love the model. It's a fantastic uh, business. Congratulations. Let's go Thank back you. in time. You've already sort of alluded to this. But tell the entrepreneurial history now. Where did you get the idea? Obviously, it was percolating because you were, you know, shopping around for all of these companies that you were helping in Austin. Yes. Elaborate yeah, so on that, though. What did you do first? How did you, you know, get the business up and running? What were the challenges that you faced in the six months at the beginning? Tell us about the history of the very beginning. Yeah, the very beginning was the first thing was that I had I had pain point, and so like there was this very real goal where they were like, you have to hit my, my CEO at the time was like, you have to hit, you know, $400,000 a month in revenue, um, by this date in the next nine months, we were doing like 50,000 at the time. I was like, cool. Like show me the product roadmap. Let me know what I need to sell. I'm sitting there selling the future with this idea that these things were going to get delivered on. And I'm having like an existential crisis because like, I'm seeing that we're not able to hire the people. I'm seeing that we're not able to retain the talent. I'm going to like, in my head, I'm going, Oh my gosh, like 
how I'm, I'm going to be made a mockery of like, I can't, I can't have this be the problem, but we can't hire people. So I went and I started helping them source talented individuals. We partnered with a company called Indela. We partnered with another company that was helping people in India. And so we just had all these solutions and they were all not ideal. And so I told them, I was like, look, I'm going to get us to that 400,000 and then I'm going to leave it. I'm going to solve this problem for every other company that's having the same issue. So did that. And then I literally just jumped on a plane, went to South America because at the time I knew it was a time zone issue thing. And I just went from every major market to major market, trying to understand the ecosystem, trying to understand the communities, trying to understand the developer communities. Did they even want to work for U.S. companies? And um, I just got a great understanding of what was going on. I came back to the U.S. I bootstrapped it myself. I started it thinking it was going to just be like a thing where I helped be a connector. So I made an LLC with my own funds and my own bank account. And I just use the network that I built when I traveled down to South America and started connecting them with people in my network in the United States that I knew needed software developers. But then what ended up happening is there was all these issues that started to occur. There would be great people I'd find, but they wanted to work for a local entity and they wanted local benefits and they wanted all of these different things. And so I was like, okay, let's go build a business down there. And so then I set up my foreign entity and I hired them under that foreign entity. And I told the people here in the United States, Hey, you know, you're just going to have to hire them through me because they want to work for local entities down there to get all the benefits. And so like, surely what ended up happening is I was just like building the business, not with any kind of long-term, this is this huge strategy. It was like, how can I just solve the problems that are happening to make this happen faster and better and more efficient and easier and designed in a way that works for not only the company in the United States, but for the folks in South America. And so it was really with my U.S. network building their teams that created the business model for Howdy. And that was, that was the beginning of it all. And as it started to gain traction and as I started to get word of mouth referrals, I thought to my, I zoomed out a little bit and I was like, wow, this is way bigger than anything I, I had previously imagined. And at the time, I brought in a co-founder who was my technical counterpart and that was when we really took a hard look of like, should we keep this as a lifestyle business or should we really, you know, go for the home run or the grand slam and, and make this be a VC backed billion dollar business. And so that's when we applied to Y Combinator, got into YC, um, had great traction there. And, and that's when we started the, the VC fundraising fun journey that all of us early founders get on. And uh, how is that? You know, I got on the VC route and that it was the biggest mistake that we ever made was getting VC money. Um, yes. You know, obviously that's not true for every company. Some companies, it's the best thing they ever do. Where do you fall in the spectrum? So I started my business with the idea that I will never do, I would never fund I would never raise capital. I would never be a VC-backed company. Hence, one of the reasons why I started it as an LLC, because I have seen so many, I've been a part of so many companies that have been on that, that treadmill. And it's a nightmare because it's, to me, why would you start a business to then go and be an employee of somebody else? That's like, like that was kind of like the way I was thinking of it because, you know, I hear founders go, oh, we can't do that. Or the board wants to do this or the board wants to do that. I'm like, who is this board that's not in the day to day and understands what's happening? And so, yes, I agree with you. I think that 
it can be a very bad route. And I think that the way that I had been a part of it in the past, it had not been ideal. And so when we went to go raise money and raise capital, my co-founder and I were very clear on what we wanted to do, how much we wanted to be diluted and how many, let's just say provisions we wanted to give up. And so something that we did that's unique that I don't think a lot of people do is we actually put in our charter founder provisions. So we had 10 founder provisions that were non-negotiables with any of the investors that wanted to give us money. And the good news is like we were growing like crazy. We were cash flow positive. We had all of these like all of this wind in our sail. And so I knew we had leverage. And also being a YC backed company come demo day, we had 93 investors like show interest in wanting to invest with us. And I ended up meeting with 93 investors. And um, I, I swear it was like 95% of them were, were trying to invest in our company. And I showed all of them, like, these are the founder provisions you accept or you don't accept it. We don't care. Like we're going on this journey with or without your capital. And so we've set our business up in that way. And then we continue to use the momentum to keep those terms so that we very much are in control of our own business. Well, I hope so. And, uh, as long as you're cash flow positive, it will stay that way. And until you have a bump in the road and then, you know, the story goes that founder yeah. provisions will have total irrelevancy, uh, as they do whatever they want, you know, that's the, the bad story you hear. So uh, let's totally. pray that that never happens to you and your business. So, uh, I hope that works out for you. <laughs> so far, so good. But, you know, if things turn, uh, I, we don't, at this moment in time, it's we interesting don't have, that you did it swearing that you wouldn't do it. <laughs> I know. I know. I, you know, we got it on our terms and, and everything that we wanted. And so we thought to ourselves, like, a little bit of capital wouldn't, wouldn't hurt. Yeah. Because I, I, again, I, I have a story to tell. I was, I was raising money. This is a long time ago, 20 years ago, raising money. And we had a perfect guy, a perfect candidate, uh, you know, the outline. And we actually found that person, someone who had the connections we needed. They, our business was unique. They needed to have, uh, education connections and, uh, things like that. And we found, we also had sworn that we were never going to take out. <laughs> we found like the utopia guy that, you know, we had always yeah. said, if we found this, we would do it. Yeah, and we did. We found that and invited him to come to town and meet with all of us. And he flew a Ferrari into town so that he would have a car to drive. You know, this is Atlanta. And so we don't have cool cars like Ferraris. They have to be flown in from California for your meeting. Um, and so he flew his Ferrari in. And we took him to dinner at the most conservative business club in the Southeast. And he walked in in a t-shirt and they said, sir, this is black tie. And he just kept on going and sat down and paid no attention to them. Um, and at that meeting, Jacqueline, every single one of us said, he's a scoundrel. He's dishonest. And then that person voted yes. We went around the table, myself included, voted for someone that we knew was dishonest, but was so impressive and the money was so enticing that we took it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? 
Yeah. We swore that we weren't going to do it, but eventually if you, if you find utopia person, you know, and then, oh, wow. <laughs> so how does that story play out? Of course, he ends up destroying the company. Oh yeah. Just like you thought, just like we all knew. I mean, we all knew it. We all voted that he was a crook. And guess what he turned out to be? A crook. Yeah. 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 You got to go with your gut. So how is it being the boss? Do you have trouble with that? You know, for such a long time, you were part of the team. Now you are the head of the team. It's a hugely different role. How has it affected? You know, I actually, I've always been very collaborative. I love to listen and hear other people's insight and thoughts. I think that's what's made me like a great sales leader, just listening to people so that I can be more solutions oriented. And the thing for me, from my perspective is it's actually been a wonderful change because maybe, maybe it's being a female. Um, it was always harder to get that kind of like deference or respect or for people to like take me seriously, especially too, because I, I try and come at it from a very collaborative, nice, warm angle. So to be honest, I guess being the boss, I don't like that word, but it is nice to have people do things and agree with you and give default respect that I haven't necessarily always had the last 17 years of my career. So that is nice. It makes things go faster and smoother and it's less friction, I would say. Um, and, it, you know, I've got a really great co-founder who fills in a lot of the gaps that I'm missing. And we just collaborate a lot and talk a lot. And I throw things off, you know, use him as a sounding board. He uses me as a sounding board. And um, it's just been, it's been wonderful, to be honest. At least lately, it's been wonderful. Have there been any challenges or issues by being a woman? Have you had any kickback, pushback, bad stories because you're a woman in the tech space? You know, not from people. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, there's going to be horror stories. I can give you like 10. But let me just tell you, I did hire this head of sales guy that like, it was amazing. <laughs> He's no longer our head of sales. But I, my whole background has been like VP of sales, head of sales, CROs. It's what I do. It's what I do with the company. My co-founder's background, he's the chief technical officer. It's product, it's engineering, it's leading engineering teams. And we're at a meeting and it's me and my co-founder, this head of sales and a couple of our other operators. And he's like going through this sales problem. And he's like, yeah, you know, I really just, I need to overcome this objection. Frank, what would you say? What do you think, Frank? Oh, and he's like talking to my co-founder and like seeking advice from him. And that's like, just like one micro example of like, how this individual would constantly defer to my co-founder for his quote unquote sales expertise instead of me. And, and, and I remember like bringing that up to him going like, what are you doing? Like I'm, I literally built this company to $20 million in revenue. You're going to go and take over now. Like, why aren't you asking me for this type of like advice and this kind of feedback? So what I mean, that's the answer. He was like, Oh, I didn't realize I wasn't doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, kind of mansplained it away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of mansplaining too. Like, um, one of the products I sold was this like SEO product, like way back when, like two, three, four companies ago, maybe. And I sold this SEO product to every major publisher in the United States. Um, so I had to know my thing about SEO, and I hired this guy to come in and help us with our marketing. And he sat there for forty-five minutes giving me the definition of SEO. I was like, okay, yeah. bro. 
you know, it's like, but I think everybody does some version of that to other people, but that it's always fun. Yes, but it is particularly obnoxious if it's a woman that you're doing it to and the woman who built the the company. So yeah. 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 But you know, I've been, I've been in this industry for two decades almost. And, uh, I, it doesn't, it doesn't phase me. I think the younger generations, they are, it's good. I'm so happy that people are being more aware and more conscious of it. And that is great. Um, I fear we might use the, like, I fear society though, is moving into a place where we're becoming too sensitive because sometimes it's like, have you read the book who moved my cheese? Where it's like, guys, like don't sweat the small stuff. Right. Um, I, I just hope that that's so sexist to think that my pain is a small thing. Jacqueline, you are so sexist. You see that I'm reversing the game. Uh, you know, if, if it's small to someone though, and they think that it's important, if you belittle a woman and her SEO, and to me, it's just moving the cheese, but to you, it's insulting your entire career. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely had your, I definitely had that struggle younger. And I think what helped me was understanding what I can do with that, right? Like, how can I change this to take the power back? And for me, and the way that I'm trying to represent it is I have the power in that scenario because my husband overheard it and he was so upset because this was back during COVID time where we were all working in the same office. And he was so upset for the way that this guy was talking about it. He was like, I can't believe you didn't come down on him. I can't believe you're not upset. And I can't believe you're this. I can't believe you're that. And I said to him, I was like, you know, what's more powerful though, is the fact that I'm aware of this and that I'm using my power to choose to not let it impact me. And that gave me so much power because I didn't allow it to hurt me. Now, I know that other people interact with that differently, but there had been so many little microaggressions that used to just like take me off my day and used to really upset me, used to really make me upset and and just change my attitude on things. And I said to myself, like, man, like, how can I take control over this? How can I take control over my own narrative rather than like allowing these impacts? And so what I would do is I would say, okay, I'm not going to choose to work with this person anymore. Or like if we're going to do a group project or if I'm going to like elect to partner with someone, I'm going to elect to partner with someone that's going to come at it from a different vantage point. And so rather than like getting upset in that moment, I gave myself permission to make better choices in the future. I love that. That's a great attitude. Jacqueline, how do we find out more? Follow you online. Continue to learn about Howdy. You know, I am, you can always email me. It's a very, very simple email, j at howdy.com or anywhere on social. I am Howdy at Howdy Jacks, J-A-X. Fantastic. Jacqueline, great story. Congratulations on the huge success. And I hope it continues. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we will be right back.
Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back and have another brave contestant willing to play the quick 10. Please welcome Robert Cody to the show. He is an intellectual property attorney. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Very good. Nice I to hear meet you're you. willing to play the quick uh, 10. Do the quick 10. Go ahead. I, we, I hear you're willing to play. Yes, I am, sir. Uh, do you want to accept the standard wager? What is the standard wager? The I bet that everyone that else is brave enough to make. Oh, interesting. Uh, give me some options, Jim. Yes or no. Give me your favorite option. Yes or no. Say that again. I missed that. Do you, do you accept the wager or not? Yes or no. I yes. will accept the wager. What Good. is the wager, Jim? We'll tell you later after we know who wins. Number one, <laughs> your favorite creativity hack. Easy one. Finding a way to drift off into the zone, into the flow where you lose track of time, where, where time feels like it's standing still. For me, that's running. Nothing better. Get into the flow. Number to two. all that is, and you'll be surprised at the ideas, the creativity that somehow appears in your mind. Number two, favorite bootstrapping trick. Play to your strengths. Focus. Don't try to be all things to all people. I'm a master at investing in IP, protecting IP. So my focus is investing in IP and helping companies that have breakthrough innovations, scale their businesses, not as a venture capitalist with a venture capital model, but somebody who sees that venture as an IP property that can be scaled globally, create many ventures from the one. So focus where you have your strengths. Number three, name your top passions. Helping, helping as many young technology companies that have developed new physical products based on breakthrough innovations protect and scale those, get out into the world so many more of them can grow and thrive. Uh, second, inspiring others to live life with pur purpose and meaning, knowing from my own experience that happiness is, is, is in the ride. The more we can help others, the more blessed our life will be. The third is... I like to say following the signs There's a great book called the alchemist listening, you know, to the winds. And so I like to follow the signs, uh, that have led me to my path in life, my calling to be of service to humanity and that keep me headed in the right direction. Uh, don't ask me where it comes from, but there's guidance that you can't see with your eyes that have allowed me to use my God given skills. Go ahead. The first three steps in starting a business are number four. The calling, don't start a business unless you feel deeply called to take that leap of faith. Let go of all the old habits of thought is number two. Be flexible. It will hold you back. See it as an adventure. See the challenges along the way as, as stepping stones to where you're headed, not roadblocks that stand in the way and learn to inspire others. You need to build a team. It takes a village. No, the best team for starting a business will not be the best team for scaling a business, but you've got to start somewhere. That's right, it. Let me, me re-explain. Five second answers, Robert. Okay. Five seconds. And I, 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 
I don't know that my I can use any ten. of this. My first top 10. Go ahead. Um, number five, the best way to get your first real customer is? Deliver a value proposition that helps them grow and thrive that's not available elsewhere and honor your words every single time. Number six, Trump, your Trump value all day long. Go ahead. Number six, your dreamiest technology is oh, artificial intelligence that will create virtual reality and augmented reality. Number seven, best entrepreneurial advice. Trust your instincts, your intuition. It speaks to you. When you feel it from the tips of your toes to the top of your head, don't let fear get in the way. Know that somehow, some way, when you take that leap of faith, miracles will happen and you'll have wings to fly. Number eight, worst entrepreneurial mistake. Letting people into your organization that do not align with your mission, with the business you're building to be of service, and keeping them there way too long. Number nine, favorite entrepreneur and why? Many, but I'm going to pick today in this moment, Jensen Wong, uh, the co-founder of, of NVIDIA, who had the courage to build a hardware company. No small feat today in a world focused on software and without that hardware company that has brought the GPU to this world and now is using what's called the DPU in the cloud, there would be no AI revolution. It would not be possible. That technology and that company is going to change the world by allowing AI to take hold in everything we do. Next. Number 10, favorite superhero. Captain America. And I'll leave people with one of my favorite scenes called On Your Left. Available on YouTube, watching Captain America run the National Mall, surrounded by the monuments to pay tribute to those who gave their lives to build this great nation, a light that shines on the world. I like to say a place where freedom reigns. There's no other nation like it in the world. And so Captain America trumps every other superhero for me. Love it. All right. Great answers. Thank you so much. We're out of time, but we are back real soon. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.